We always have so many things to tell our audience about here at Intelligence Squared, so when I'm needing a top-down view of it all, I don't want to feel like I'm looking at organised chaos. That's why I really love Notion, which lays out different threads of work in a beautifully designed layout, and despite all of its clever AI tech going on in the background, it feels as clear and easy as putting pen to paper. Remember that? But with Notion, you can do a lot more than jot down a few thoughts. Notion is a place where any team can write, plan, organize, and rediscover the joy of play. And thanks to its AI-powered model, the way it works is so intuitive, every question has an answer. I still love my paper notebook, but sitting next to Notion, it might need to up its game a little bit. Try Notion for free and up your game too when you go to notion.com slash squared. That's all lowercase letters, notion.com slash squared, lowercase. So you can start turning ideas into action. And when you use the link, you're supporting a Intelligence Squared 2. That's Notion.com slash squared. When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Intelligence Squared. I'm senior producer Connor Boyle. On today's podcast, Julian Bagini, the writer and philosopher whose new book is How to Think Like a Philosopher. For today's discussion, we're looking at politics and how real world issues and the public discourse in general could potentially benefit from embracing a more philosophical perspective. Joining Julian in conversation today is Jesse Norman, the politician and author who was himself once an academic philosopher. Here's Jesse with more. Well, thank you very much indeed, and what a delight it is to welcome an Intelligent Squared uh, audience, and doubly so to this fabulous conversation with Julian Bergini. Uh, Julian is uh, a, a man who's spoken to more philosophers and done more philosophy himself than uh, most people walking the planet by a very long margin, and uh, he's written this fabulous new book, How to Think Like a Philosopher, now available in all good bookshops and online. And if you wanted any one human being who spoke human as well as spoke philosophy to debate how we apply philosophy to politics or whether politics can benefit from philosophy, you would probably start and end with Julian. So what a delight it is to see you, uh, Jules, and um, welcome to the programme. And um, perhaps you can kick us off by, by, by giving us a bit of an intro into, into your book and, and possibly any implications for slow thinking or uh, inadequately clear thinking politicians. Okay. Um, thanks, Jesse. I have to say, it's very unusual to actually be pleased that the, the politician in the room is the person in charge of the conversation. But I'm v- delighted about that this evening. But you're, you're no normal, no ordinary politician, of course. Well, look, thanks. I, I, I won't try and digest the whole book, but perhaps I can say something about the general thrust of it, which I think directly, directly relates to good thinking in politics and public life. And that's that when you, if you pick up most books on you know, how to think, critical thinking texts, uh, even philosophical textbooks, they tend to focus on what you might call matters of technique. So in particular, they'll tell you about you know, formal logic. It may, may, not, may or may not use symbolic logic, but they'll certainly tell you about you know, how to construct a deductive argument, which is sound and valid. And they'll run through different fallacies that you need to avoid, uh, et cetera, et cetera. And th- these are all good things. And I cover a lot of them in the book. They're all very, very sensible. But it seems to me that there's a big thing missing from this. 
And that is that good thinking doesn't only require a command of these technical skills. It requires, to use a rather old-fashioned word, virtues. And what we mean by virtues here is not kind of, you know, uh, eating tofu and drinking sort of herbal tea. What we mean is it's those, the, the good habits and practices which are conducive to, to good living, good living both for yourself and for the rest of society. And there are virtues of thought. And of course, this isn't a... I mean, I, I don't ever claim to be an original thinker. I, I like to try and think I'm a, a synthesizer. I try and bring things together. Uh, Bernard Williams, who was one of the a great philosopher from the late 20th century in, in England, he, his last book was called Truth and Truthfulness. And in that book, he talked about this. And he, he thought there were two key virtues of thinking, which were accuracy and sincerity. So what he, what he means is this. If you're going to think, well, you've got to, you know, you've Knowing the logical chops, that's all very well. But first of all, you've got to sort of be determined to, to be accurate. So if you're arguing from the facts, you've got to make sure you're getting those facts right, okay? You've got to make sure you're not just latching onto the facts that are convenient to you, ignoring the ones that aren't. You've also got to be accurate in the sense you've got to represent the arguments of people you are arguing against fairly and accurately, not caricature them, straw man them. And the sincerity thing is you've actually got to be really keen to genuinely get to the truth. And that may sound obvious, but of course, it's easier said than done, because most of us, when we come to any issue, if we're honest, what we're primarily interested in doing is supporting the conclusion that we already have and the one that makes us comfortable. So it's a real effort to engage with absolute sincerity. Now, this, you can see how this clearly relates to politics, I think, because politics is full of smart people. And I think it's a great mistake to sort of not to think that. I remember Peter Singer, quite a few years back now, he wrote a short book um, called The President of Good and Evil, I think, which is, which is about George W. Bush. And in the first few pages, he says, it's very fashionable to say that George Bush is stupid. And he says, this is, this is a mistake. You don't get to be the President of the United States by being stupid right? Uh, you're underestimating him. You've got to take him seriously. And if you want to sort of like, you know, if you oppose him as Singer did, you've got to understand him and take him seriously. So, um, but the point is that there are lots of very smart people in politics, but a lot of them, I think, struggle with sincerity and accuracy, right? Uh, we are getting people who will obviously, for, to score political points, they will cherry pick the statistics, the findings that they like. Um, to, in order to make their opponents look, look stupid, they will caricature their positions and so forth. And again, sincerity, there are lots of things in the way of sincerity. And I, I really want you know, to hear your view on this, Jesse, because in a way, there are actually official ways in which you can't be sincere. If you take collective responsibility, you have a kind of responsibility as a politician to support your party line, especially if, if you're a backbencher, not so much, but even so to a certain degree. If you're in government, we have this convention where you have to support it. So in a way, you can't be sincere. You can't say, I've just come out of that meeting and I thought it was a stupid idea, but I'm going to go along with my <laughs> my peers. So yeah, there are real problems with having that kind of properly intellectual conversation in politics. And I think that I, I'm aware from previous conversations I've had with you know people in politics that sometimes they think that people who come in from the outside philosophically talking about how we should do politics are basically just very naive actually and they have this unrealistic idea of, of how much we can expect and hope uh, politics to be rational fair honest and sensible i don't know what you make of that 
Well, uh, what a fantastic way into the conversation, Julian. So uh, uh, let's just let's do a little philosophy first, and then pick up some of the political points mm. that or political questions that you raise. Uh, so I think it's very interesting and important to distinguish between when one of the rational uh, or the logical tools that a philosopher has at their disposal, and then what you've described as the epistemic virtues uh, with which those tools are being deployed, mm. because otherwise. And as you say, in politics, you do see this a bit. You get people you know, constantly failing to give adequate weight to the other side or chopping. And of course, um, that itself can derive from a rather debased conception of the political process and indeed the electorate. Now, one of the joyous things about our politics is that at the end of the day, if you want to be an MP, you, you know, a majority of your constituents have to vote for you. And in many constituencies... Uh, they will know who you are and they will be paying a lot of attention to what you say. The idea that somehow the electorate is stupid or doesn't notice when, you know, people chop off an argument, give it halfway, don't listen to the other side, uh, as it were, uh, misrepresent what's being said, you know, it's absolutely deranged. The electorate, certainly in Herefordshire, and I think it's true everywhere else, is extremely smart about these things. And of course, it drives them mad when they see these virtues of of. Uh, uh, the way in which you know people normally in outside politics interact with each other, giving people the benefit of the doubt, hearing them out, you know, rationally reconstructing their position, you know, it drives them mad when they don't hear that being used in politics, and it, it fuels the idea that you know it's all really about pre-prepared answers to, as it were, questions that you wish you'd been asked rather than the one you actually do get asked. Uh, at the same time. I, I do think the, the the politician can push back a little bit. Politicians can say, look, uh, what is politics? I mean, politics is an attempt to create a, a framework in which this country can be safely and peaceably governed. So that's one way of thinking about politics. And it's extremely complicated. It's complicated in several different dimensions. So one is the fact that uh, uh, there are lots of different facts that might bear on a particular political position or judgment. A second is that there are lots of dynamic factors that mean that that judgment uh, may change over time as the facts change and draw different principles into play. And then uh, and I'll give an example of that in, in, in a moment. And then the third one, of course, is that Politics is ultimately about trying to trade off things which are incommensurable with each other. So if someone says, look, uh, uh, you know, we can either go for this policy which gives us 2% GDP growth or this policy gives us 2.5% GDP growth, most people will say, well, we'll talk to an economist and we'll probably go for the one with the more growth, right? If, on the other hand, it's a question about building the uh, airport or protecting the wetlands, you know, you can have all the economists in the world telling how marvellous the the uh, the airport is, and that's not going to persuade someone who's concerned about the wetlands because they're not just thinking about economics, if they're thinking about economics at all, if and vice versa. So you've got to have some process by which these incommensurable ways of thinking are taken out of their professional boxes and put into some democratic framework where those things can be traded off against each other. In that sense, it's a rather Burkean thought. A good politician, a good member of parliament, is kind of a philosopher in action. It's trying to think in those, in the, if they're doing, if, they're, if they have the epistemic virtues you're describing, it's trying to think around the corners of how these different interests get traded off. And 
when we think about, I'll, I'll take another Burkean example just because it's quite useful. So uh, people sometimes accused Burke of being inconsistent because he supported the American Revolution, but was violently against the French Revolution. And so the thought is, well, hold on a second, you know, you seem to be in favour of one revolution and not in favour of another. That means you're a hopelessly inconsistent, you know, deceitful yeah, uh, uh, windbag. This claim was made about Burke during his lifetime. Of course, it takes the philosopher to say, well, actually, we mean slightly different things by revolution in each case. The American Revolution was a fundamentally conservative defense to protect a way of life from the arbitrary imposition of imperial power by Britain and the through the form of taxation. And the French Revolution was the defense of a conservative defense of uh, the, the opposition to French Revolution was a conservative defense of some form of society, not necessarily the, the Bourbon society at the time, but some virtues of society in the face of a totalitarian political attack. So those kinds of considerations are going to be echoing in politics as well. And the mistake of thinking that either all politicians are thuggish and brutish and uh, deceitful, or, or indeed that the electorate won't notice, is I think that there are a, a cluster of different mistakes involved in those. I mean, the, the interesting points, I think you made, made more than two, but I think there are two I just want to pick up on. The first one, I think, is this idea that um, you know, people overstate the extent to which you know, politicians are sort of deceitful, whatever, because people notice. And effectively, to say that, it sounds like a criticism of politicians. In, in effect, it's an insult on the, on the electorate because it's saying they can't spot these things. Now, I think there's some truth to that. But I think what we also know is in a democracy, what really matters is often, especially these days, the, the swing voters. If you can swing enough people at the right time, so it may well be that 90% of the people are, you know, making their decisions on the basis of their thought out decisions. But, that, you know, but all you need to do is to fool enough of the people enough of the time. And I just think that, you know, I, I don't think we can look at the record of uh, probably any of the major political parties and say that, you know, they haven't, they haven't used some rather devious um, techniques of rhetoric, which are not based in, in reason in order to persuade things. One in particular, I'll give you the one example. I think I do mention it in the book. I'll be interested to know what you think about this one. And I'm always, by the way, I'm always terrible at remembering names and who said it. But um, yeah, Miliband was doing quite well. And, um, you know, basically they threw out, you know, Tory HQ under the, the um, Linton Crosby. So um, he, uh, you know, he, he, had, he, he was... Uh, yeah, he was well known for his Machiavellian techniques and the dead cat strategy, which Boris Johnson had sort of like had publicly spoken in support of, was the idea that you just throw out something outrageous and it changes the subject and it gets people talking about that instead of something else. Also, you can raise doubt. So he threw in this accusation that, you know, what was going to happen was Labour was going to get into bed of the SNP and the, the nuclear deterrent would go. Oh, and by the way, he stabbed his brother in the back. You know, it was these these were classic kind of smears and distraction tactics. And, you know, there is some evidence they worked a bit right now. They didn't work because the electorate is so stupid that everyone believed it. It worked because enough people were, you know, the seeds of doubt were sown, those things were put in, that it affected them. And, you know, you can, if you, 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 I don't know whether you think that's a genuine example of, of that kind of technique. If not, I'd like, I'd like to know what you thought was going on, why those accusations were thrown out when they were clearly somewhat um, spurious. Um, so it, it does happen, doesn't it? I mean, it's not, you can't just sort of like say, oh, no, no. In, in a way, you're, the danger is you're saying because, to say politicians are using these things is to insult the electorate. They, they never do it. 
but they do. The events calendar is filling up here at Intelligence Squared, and to create each one, we obviously rely on some brilliant guests and onstage talent. But behind the scenes, there's also a producer, a production team, and the budget in the mix too. You've got to keep an eye on all of that stuff in one place. NetSuite is the number one cloud financial system, bringing accounting, financial management, inventory, and HR into one platform, slashing manual tasks and errors. And you can cut the cost of maintaining multiple systems because it's super easy to get started. NetSuite exists in the cloud, you see, no hardware needed. So you're cutting IT costs too. That's why over 37,000 companies have already made the move. And now by popular demand, NetSuite has extended its one-of-a-kind flexible financing program for a few more weeks. Head to netsuite.com slash squared. That's netsuite.com slash squared. netsuite.com slash squared. Sponsoring the show for this episode is Marquee TV. Marquee TV is a streaming service with a difference. It's bringing you the top tier of performing arts straight into your living room or onto your device. So think dance, theatre, music, anything you might find in the West End, Broadway, or maybe a cool little experimental space too, but saving you the cost of a few tickets as well. I've got happily a bit lost in their vast library of performances, exclusive interviews, and behind-the-scenes content. Choreographer Jonathan Watkins' interpretation of George Orwell's classic 1984 was pretty cool, and I love the dance piece, Sutra, inspired by the skills of what is Shaolin monks. And we've got a special treat for our listeners. Marquee TV offers three months of access for just 99 cents. That's right, three months for only 99 cents. With the code squared, simply visit marquee.tv and use the promo code squared to dive into the world of arts like never before. Bring the arts home with Marquee TV. Well, I, I, what do I think? I, 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 I don't doubt for a second that, you know, political parties through the centuries have been guilty of um, um, skullduggery of different kinds. And uh, I don't actually remember the exact circumstances on which you described. Mm. There certainly have been moments where, um, you know, uh, I'm sure conservatives have, have thrown dead cats onto the table. And, um, and, and indeed you know, were one without making a party political point to to point to a more recent example of something, it would be the it would be the the uh, extraordinary um, accusation put out about Rishi Sunak um, from the Labour Party trying to connect him with all kinds of nefarious deeds in absolute violation of any kind of fact. Now, the, the, what is going on there? in those cases, seems to be an attempt to kind of create a subterranean dog whistle or link. Mm. Uh, um, now, whether it actually affects people, it has this, one of the reasons why people do it, I think, is because the media kind of class gets very up, angry about it, and then it, it sustains itself, and therefore you get lots of free publicity from doing mm. it in the way that you weren't anticipating. But the question really makes much difference. I, I tend to think a series of things that are probably inconsistent. We know that politicians, sorry, that, that people, a lot of people make up their minds, quite, you know, on the day itself or even in the, in the polling booth itself. So there clearly are kind of late deciders. Now, are those late deciders thereby automatically swing voters? No, I don't think so. I think often, you know, they, they, they may well have instincts that were shaped by previous experience. Uh, and... 
Uh, and you know there may be little things in the last few days of election that break one way or another. There was the Nick Clegg surge in 2010, where it made him do much better than anyone thought as a part of it. And the debates have this effect. But you know, uh, 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 I suppose what we're as philosophers thinking about is is whether or not there's a lot of evidence that the electorate is yeah. systematically misinformed. And I tend to think there's relatively little about that. And I think we ought to destroy a distinction between different democracies. I mean, a democracy in which you have your local member of parliament is one in which, unless you're living in a big city where there tends to be a lot of turnover of voters, you know, many people will know the, the MP or know someone who knows the MP. And so that does create a kind of accountability and a kind of awareness of, you know, when that person is 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 misleading people or whether their character is to mislead people. And there's certainly plenty of people in politics who are like that. Um, but but you know there are other there are other countries in which democracies don't have that direct link where people know or know someone who knows the candidate. And in an America, the congressional districts are you know, nine hundred thousand people, not a hundred thousand people or smaller. And so those those tend to be ones where you have to give yourself over to you know, larger scale political communications. And that can create more, I think, more scope for potential deception and misunderstanding. Well, let me, let me say one thing on that and then move on to the second point of yours I wanted to pick up on. I mean, I, I think, you know, you'll be, you're, you're being very sort of generous to the, to the public, which is kind of what, what we should be. But uh, frankly, and this is something you couldn't directly comment on uh, in your position, but, you know, as a politician like Boris Johnson is such an egregious liar, I would say a liar publicly, um, a person of no moral backbone and character whatsoever. The fact that still um, many of his constituents wants to back him shows there's something going on there which is more than just people attending to the evidence and everything. Without uh, entering a defence, I mean, my my views on Boris were set out in my letter of no confidence um, mm. about this time a year ago. But the uh, I, I do think that it's important not to over-intellectualise this I mean, when people take decisions about politicians, they're not just taking decisions about their what they say and what they do and whether those mm. are incompatible with each other. Because you know, anyone who thought that wouldn't would not be able to account for why lots of politicians get elected. They're also making judgments about character, like ability. You know, whether they could go out on the pub. But now, you might, in some platonic realm, think, well, these people shouldn't have that view. What we really want from politicians is kind of you know, uh, people you know, who are chosen purely on their ability to answer questions and execute rationally perfect policy. But actually, would, would you know, is that really the right view? And do we, do we not want to put that under some pressure? I would have thought we do. Well, let me move on to the other point you were talking about, which is that you were saying that politicians do have to think like philosophers because they have to think about trade-offs over things that are incommensurable. And I think that's right. And that's, that's the kind of thing where, you know, politicians at least should be like philosophers. Um, politics involves very hard choices, you know. And I'm, I'm actually you, you use that term platonic. I'm not remotely platonic about pretty much anything, and I think especially politics. Politics is very much a question of uh, muddling through. It's essentially, and there's a very I don't know if you know this. It's a very short book by Stuart Hampshire, Justice is Conflict. It was his I think it was his last book, but it was it was excellent. Really, the title the title says it all. Really, which is that you know we only need politics and we only need justice because of conflicts of interest because and conflicts of interest which are inevitable because in any society what's good for some people is not necessarily going to be good for everyone else there are win-wins 
And there are perhaps fewer zero-sum games than people make out, but there are often these trade-offs. And so one has to do that. The problem here is, of course, that's true, but how often do we get an honest accounting for these trade-offs? How often are we told instead we can have you know cake and eat it politics, or to use another phrase from our favourite um, man of the moment? Um, so I, I think I think you know I I would like to think, and this just may be completely naive. I would like a politics in which those trade-offs were discussed more honestly and openly, and I think it's an inability to do that. Which is which is problematic, and, and I, I think this is perhaps to do with one of the, one of the failures, uh, or, or say limitations of democracy, which is that you know, I know again you, you're sticking up for the electorate here, but most of us are kind of cognitively a bit lazy. We don't want to think about things more than we have to, and a lot of people don't think a great deal about politics. And if one person is sort of saying, "Well, you know, we can give you this, but you're going to have to pay a price," which is that, and the other person saying, "We can give you this, and there's no price to pay." You know, it takes a certain amount of effort and, you know, sincerity and demand for accuracy on the part of the electorate to sort of interrogate that and go, actually, you know, I'm going to pick the person who says there's a downside over the one who says there's no downside. So, you know, in a sense, politics in a democratic society is in a bit of a publicity and advertising and marketing game. And I think that does make it hard to be honest about trade-offs, isn't it? I mean, can you think of an example? Can you, I'd like to think if you can think of an example in recent politics where any major party has, you know, really made a, a strong point of the, of, the tr- of the trade-offs, you know, that they've been honest about trade-offs and really fall, followed through on that and tried to persuade in full awareness of that. Uh, a f- fabulous uh, question. I-, I do think there are there are moments in politics where people, uh, you know, st- want to argue for a policy which turns out to be which which they believe in advance is is unpopular, or you know where uh, and and I mean take, I mean I don't want to get too embedded in the current conversation. It's not a topic I. I'm particularly comfortable with for reasons you all understand. But but I think the conversation about migrants at the moment is a very interesting conversation because you have an elite uh, uh, discussion which is largely conducted by people who are um, insulated from many of the concerns that a large section of the normal working population of this country are highly attuned to. And uh, the elite population uh, discussion basically says, you know, we don't, you know, um, uh, as a result of leaving the EU, uh, you know, that was an act of xenophobia, and then has to work out, well, if it was an act of xenophobia, why is migration higher than it was now, now than it was before the the the, the Brexit vote, and so that so that's a contradiction which they don't want to have to engage with, and of course they don't want to have to engage with the fact that many MPs' constituents are deeply worried because they are on housing ladders, because they have trouble getting access to dental care or health care, um, because of pressure on public services. So uh, there's, an, there's a requirement for honesty on all sides of this conversation. And, you know, to, 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 to as it were, just restrict it to the, to the politicians is, is, I think, a mistake. But I do think that it, you know, you can you can pick up a, the point you're making in a slightly different way, and I think accurately, which is to say, when did a politician last say 
This is a really difficult question. It's unbelievably complicated. Mm. It's it's scary and complex. And I can tell you now, we're going to make some mistakes in trying mm. to solve it. Um, but actually, it's really important to proceed because the the ultimate goal is is a very is a very valuable one. I mean, we've got. I'll give you an example. We've got one at the moment. Interestingly, in my department, on which I'm responsible for, the Department of Transport. You know, a lot of people don't like the idea that we would be moving for reasons of carbon reduction, carbon emissions reduction to electric vehicles. So it becomes a huge set of arguments about how no one can afford a car, uh, electric vehicle, or there's never any charging infrastructure, to which the answer is, hold on a sec, we're at the early stages of a, of a process, and um, electric vehicles are in many ways a profoundly important change, and they do reduce uh, emissions uh, when you use them uh, over time um, very effectively, and uh, not just uh, carbon emissions. And yes, the infrastructure is taking time to get it into place, but once it's in place, it'll be there. The same would be true with putting in petrol infrastructure and all the rest of it. So just in other words, we need to be on both sides a bit more grown up about dealing with truths that have you know negative short-term consequences where the big goal is profoundly valuable and worthwhile. And that's a goal that we won't get for another 10 10 to 15 years or so. But nevertheless, we're taking those decisions now. And I've no doubt that, you know, another party, if it was elected, will do something of the same. So there are moments where even in with the chop and change of a democracy, you get a consistency of purpose. And there are other moments, health, uh, social care, um, where you, you do not get a consistency of purpose because both sides have found it easier to to kind of try to undermine each other, and you don't get the consensus that democracy requires for long-term policy formation. Now, we're a little away from philosophy, but that sense of a willingness to articulate difficult truths and admit that problems are hairy and difficult and uh, complex and may not be easily solved in the short term, I, I personally think the electorate is crying out for it. But that's not necessarily the view widely held in policy. Well, that's it. I mean, this is this is. Are we both sounding sort of naive and hopeful here? I mean, if I think if I think of an example answer to my own question, I'd perhaps suggest you know, the, the COVID pandemic. You know, at the beginning of the pandemic, I think there was a certain amount of honesty that you know we have to move quickly. We're not going to get everything right, and everyone did understand that. And but it was a non. It was unprecedented and it was non-partisan. It wasn't a party political issue, so people could do that. With most other issues, things become party. political political. And there's one other obstacle to this, actually, which I wanted to bring up because you know, I, I quote you in the book um, probably more than, more than once, I believe. And I think you used the phrase, I don't know if I got the phrase from you or you just used the phrase that I got elsewhere, but it's this idea that one of the things that plagues our thinking is is is, is term cluster thinking. And, and you used it, and I, I use it now, and I don't know if we use it exactly the same way, but by cluster thinking, it's just this idea that people views, certain views, it comes to be assumed that they form a set and they don't. Okay. So yeah, or they don't have to. And there are examples of the most, the most worst, one of the worst examples I think was climate change, where for a long time, it just seemed that climate change was an issue of the left for some reason. And the right did not see it as an issue. And, 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 you know, now we can see that's ridiculously naive. It's just a scientific fact. We have to deal with it. But it became associated with kind of like sandal-wearing left-wing kind of hippies. And, and the right kind, kind of ignored it. Similarly, other, there are other cluster thinkings around. I mean, you actually mentioned migration. And there was a certain view, I think, on the left that, you know, there were certain <coughs> that one cannot sort of even talk about problems of migration 
because to acknowledge any problems at all is to is to be to be right wing. And I think this sort of cluster thinking is is is, is hugely problematic in politics. And it seems that politicians themselves do fall for it. Now, the bit I quoted in the book was you said you thought we were moving beyond this rather boring stage of cluster thinking, which seemed to me to be a rather optimistic um, comment. Um, do, do, you, do you stand by that? And what, what, evidence, is, what evidence do you have that this is actually true? Well, I, I hate to accuse myself of um, consistency, but you will know, uh, Julian, that I was one of the very few MPs who did not take a public position on Brexit. And one of the reasons was because it was, from a philosophical standpoint, a hopelessly ill-formed and underspecified question, and which affected people in many different ways over a time period which was itself uh, unstated. And therefore, uh, it, 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 you know, you, all you were going to get was uh, enormous dissatisfaction when people who had, as it were, voted on either side of the debate in one judgment, either did get what they wanted and it turned out to be less than they thought or didn't get what they wanted and it turned out to be more than, you know, there was an endless possibility for dispute. And I had plenty of constituents talking about cluster thinking who, you know, were um, good, you know, um, um, were paid up believers in the European Union, but who just believed at the end of the day it was becoming a political pro project that was, you know, was was out of control, and I had plenty who were you know died in the wool conservatives uh, who were perfectly content on the on the on the on the sovereignty issue, but you know, wanted to have their kids go and do stage and uh, and um, study in, in Europe. So it turned out to be um, you know uh, uh, in a philosophical sense really quite a dishonest way to resolve. You know, if ever there was a, a time where you, it might have been good to have had a, some process of pre-digestion or discussion before you put the vote to people, it might have mm. been better to have, that would have been one. So, so, but I think in general, what I was trying to suggest was that we were getting away over time from uh, a kind of idea that somehow, if you think social policy is really important, you must be of the left. If you think, um, I mean, I don't think it's ever been true that if you thought environmental policy was 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 important, you had to be of the left. There were plenty of people who were concerned about species and um, litter and things like that who were of the right. It's only when climate change in terms of carbon became overwhelming that the left um, took that opportunity of a big state, arguably, to try to align it with themselves. And of course, there are many Tories who are deeply worried about carbon emissions, but don't necessarily think the answer is to spend huge amounts of other people's money doing it. So these are complex questions. Uh, and I guess all I was saying was maybe some of these options are being opened up now by the way, and in some respects, the big society, my kind of Birkin conservatism is like that because it's constantly thinking, aren't there what you might call sane reforming ways of solving social problems, um, um, you know, which doesn't involve conceding that social problems are somehow automatically the province of one or another political party. So that, I guess, was the context in which we were, we were talking. Why, why don't we just move on a little bit more um, philosophically, if, if, if we can, and just talk a little bit about what, what you talk about in the book as, as P factor. Can you just give us a sense as to what that means and whether, whether you think it's got an application to politics, uh, Jim? Yes. Well, I mean, uh, the, the, the P factor, I want to call it the phi factor, the Greek letter for or the phi, but uh, that was considered too sort of like obscure. So we ended up with the P factor. Well, you know, it's like the, it's the X factor, the P factor. And I, I think the, the P factor is what we've, we've called epistemic virtue. It's that kind of 
that's which sincerity and accuracy are two aspects of it but it's basically that kind of I think a lot of it is to do with actual well sincerity probably actually to be honest is 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 part of the core of it and uh how does one put it into practice and i think i think two of the things we really have to do well they're one thing in two ways of saying it it it's slow down and pay attention because I, I i do think that most bad thinking is a result of you know we have the phrase jump jumping to conclusions and that's what we do we jump to conclusions we don't think we're jumping to conclusions because in our heads a and b seem logically connected we we think we're just walking over the bridge right whereas actually jumping so so often if you just slow down and pay attention you notice that things do not follow from one another or you you notice that there's something suspicious going on and you know part of this is is simply just asking the extra question checking is what i've heard what it sounds like is this what it seems to be and you can give so many examples of this so many news stories come out and if you just stop for two minutes and go is that right is that what it sounds like and and you'll find it's it's wrong Uh, it's interesting this is an example which isn't perhaps of the the highest political importance but it is relevant we're all concerned about food waste i think uh food waste is a big issue but when you hear the numbers about food waste it's quite extraordinary i discovered a lot of official numbers include um, in food waste the inedible parts of food now that's just not what most people would expect if i told you that 10 percent of food is wasted you would think that's that 10 percent of the food we could be eating is not being eaten if i was to say no no that includes bones and shells you would think well that's not what i thought food waste was so you've always got to dig around in, in these statistics and I think that, you know, that's one example, but it's always that slow down and look. It's, it's, it sounds simple, right? That's the thing. Whereas we're often in a hurry. And again, smart people can be in a hurry. I have met lots of very, very clever people, but, you know, actually they want to be right and they want to win. And they're just very, very good at um, picking up on the arguments that, that help for that and the evidence that helps for that. And so, so, so they're brilliant. They're brilliant in they're brilliant in lots of ways, but they're not good thinkers in the way that we would really want a good thinker to be, because their 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 quickness and their wit and their intelligence leads them often to the wrong conclusions because they're just the ones that they they want. Uh, you, you must have met a few people like that yourself. Well, I, I think that's true, and we can and we can all think of politicians who fit into those categories. So so. You know, F.E. Smith, of course, famously kind of great wit, marvellous House of Commons man. Would you want him, as Lord Carrington would say, not necessarily someone you'd want to go into the jungle with? <laughs> and and the other example, I mean, just taking an example at random, would be would be Clement Attlee. You know, um, you know, uh, uh, not a great jumper to conclusions, not a great kind of rapier wit, but you know, a rock of solidity in a in a in a national government and then in a in a Labour government. And, and there is and that points us to a distinction between kind of parliamentary activity and governing. Mm. And and in many ways what you're describing I think are the are the are the merits of a good governor rather than the merits of a great parliamentarian. When we think about uh when we think about politics in, in Parliament, of course We've touched on a couple of things that are intrinsic to that process: uh, 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 accountability of power, 
um, to a democratic um, a check and, and questioning. Absolutely essential. Going with that, the, the crucial um, importance, not just of, as it were, truthful answers in particular cases, but a culture that is normatively oriented towards producing truth and accuracy. Uh, both of those things are absolutely essential. When you get to governing, uh, of course, th- that preoccupation with truth and accuracy remains. But of course, you are then automatically having to operate in terms that are more discreet, because you can't make everything public if you want to govern, um, uh, uh, more oriented towards uh, the collective working out of potentially incommensurable disagreements as it were, in the changing room, not on the field of play. And that does create challenges. And one of the, one of the arguments I often make, and, and people rarely accept it, but I think it's true, is that the whipping system in British politics is a force for greater honesty and greater cleanliness in politics. No one ever believes this because they think the women's system is all about, mm. you know, persuading people to vote against their interest and, you know, some poor uh, member of parliament's individual conscience being kind of destroyed by the bullying of the whip's office. In fact, that's not how it works at all. All, all, all whipping does is to say, well, hold on a second, you're still on a manifesto, you're supposed to be conservative. Um, we were elected to get a bunch of stuff done. Might, you might want to think about supporting the stuff we've been elected to do. When you get that, then you don't get and of course, no one wants to credit this because it's so contrary to a rather, uh, I think, a rather naive view of democracy that we sometimes do have in, in and around politics. No one wants to credit that actually if the alternative is what the living system was designed to cure, which is factional politics, making, you know, collecting votes by offering people bribes, which is often the way it's done in some other countries one could mention, then whipping looks very good because it's a way of not having pork barrel every time you have a piece of legislation. So so paradoxically, something that you thought was bad and possibly a f- source of dishonesty and evil turns out to be rather helpful and beneficial to the exercise of democratic politics. Well, that's an incredibly Burkean argument, I think, there, Jesse. It's sort of like, you know, again, you, you defending something which seems irrational and ridiculous, but actually it, it turns out it's something that was invented for reasons that we've forgotten and works. I'm not so convinced about that, but... Rather than focus on that in particular, I suppose one, I'm aware that we're going to have to take some questions in a minute, but I, I am, one thing that does interest me a lot is, you know, it's very easy to say we want more sort of philosoph- philosophical thinking, you know, whatever that means in politics. Uh, easy to say that. The point is where, when, how, you know, because it's, it, it's not realistic to expect, you know, you can't have run day-to-day business or anything as a, a philosophy seminar, for sure. So when are the right points? Now, there are a few sort of obvious answers to this. I mean, first of all, the, the most obvious uh, point at which to do this is actually often when uh, parties are in opposition, when they're trying to formulate their, their, their policies. So when you're, when you're formulating policies, you're, you should be doing that over time. You should be doing that slowly. You should certainly be very philosophical there. There's an argument that on the front line, it's just not really possible. It's naive to expect it. And I know I've spoken to a few people who've been MPs and philosophers. Oliver Letwin, for example. Tony, Tony Wright, I definitely count as a philosopher. He's a political theorist, in, 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 you know, as his official label. But these labels, he was a very philosophical guy. And people, you know, they, they always say, you know, at the front line of politics, you know, things need to get done. And, you know, often the last people want is the person saying, on the one hand, this and on the one hand that, or whatever or whatever that might be. And so there is a problem about being sort of duly philosophical there. 
but I'm I'm not so sure. I think that I mean I can see sometimes you have to do things quickly so you can't be as thorough as you'd like to. I think that doesn't mean that you should never be sort of like asking all the philosophical questions. And the other thing which I'd like to be optimistic about is that there is a kind of view that whatever you think about what's going on under the bonnet, as it were, no matter how philosophically well thought out the policies are, when it comes to presenting them and persuading people, forget about that. You're just using tools of persuasion, right? Whatever works to get people to believe it. Now, I have this sort of, again, it may seem a naive view, but I do go back to Aristotle on this. Aristotle's view of oratory was that it required three things, logos, pathos, ethos, right? Good, right. So, so, so the yes, true. So, what what is it that makes a persuasive politician? And I think we have examples of this. Actually, is the best persuasive politicians are, are the people who combine ethos. In other words, they they do have good character, and they're seen as being a good character. Pathos, they they do speak to people's emotions, but also logos, they've got that reason. And I think a lot of the most admirable politicians of recent years, and you know, the people who. People generally like and admire. Someone like a Barack Obama, now what do you think of their politics? Barack Obama, Jacinda Ardern in New Zealand. They were people, I think, who did that. They, they weren't just orators. They weren't just empathizers. They were, they were orators and empathizers, but they, they were able to also bring in that element of logos. And so you tell, as, as a frontline politician, am I, am I naive to think that actually we should expect our, lead, our, lead, our politicians to be able to speak to our reason as well as our emotions? Yes. Um, uh, we're going to have to stop in a second. I can see Hannah lurking to come back into the um, discussion and, and wind up what's been a fascinating debate. Before she goes, let me make, if I may, a completely controversial but ultimately philosophical point, um, which you may or may not want to agree with, Julian, which is that um, we've seen you know, quite a lot of argument about how you know poorly performing the economy has been in the wake of the pandemic. A lot of people said, well, this is really about Brexit and shows what a bad idea Brexit was. And I just want to make a very, very philosophical point, which is even if you bracket out the pandemic, no sane person in relation to Brexit thought there wasn't going to be economic dislocation if the UK decided to leave. So the fact that there's, UK, there's economic dislocation if the UK decides to leave is not in and of itself an argument against Brexit. It's something that is implicit in their argument. If we want to see whether Brexit was a good idea or a bad idea, we have to look to a longer term or a different way of thinking about it, because at the moment it's underdetermined. Uh, is that something you have any sympathy with? Well, I have some sympathy with that, but then, but I also remember there was a bus with a number of prints on the side of it, right? Which was actually so. You know, the idea that no one was. No, that no one was claiming there was an instant win. From Some people were claiming that, and a certain number of people believed it, and that number of people who believed it may have been enough. It goes back to what we were saying before, you know, uh, very early on in the conversation. We don't want to claim everyone's stupid and all that kind of stuff, but you only need to fool enough of the people enough of the time and I think that when it comes to politics, people opportunistically will, I think, sometimes. Uh, we're going to leave as an exercise to the reader whether Julian was changing the subject in the last discussion. But um, I think that was the moment for me to thank Julian um, for a fascinating discussion. I've really enjoyed having him put a little bit of the rotisserie treatment on me as a politician. It's been lovely <laughs> to talk about a few philosophical distinctions with him as a philosopher and uh, how clever of... Um, uh, Intelligence Squared to have brought this event together and, and say thank you to them. Thanks for listening to this episode of Intelligence Squared. The episode was produced by Hannah Kay with editing from Tom Hall. We'd love to hear your feedback and what you think we should be talking about next. 
who we should have on, and what our future debates should be. Send us an email or a voice note with your thoughts to podcasts at intelligencesquared.com or tweet us at intelligence2. And if you'd like to hear more, attend some of our in-person events or peruse over 20 years of the back catalogue featuring some of the world's great minds, then head over to intelligencesquared.com. 